Thanks to Sana Skin Studio for supporting the No Podcast. Sana is a skin studio that is shifting the relationship with your skin and your products through goal-driven facials, real guidance, and clean skincare. Stay tuned for our promo code so you can receive $25 off of your first facial at Sana Skin Studio. Welcome to the No Podcast with me, Nikki Spo. What's up, fam? You are listening to The Know, where it's not about knowing everything, it's about coming to know ourselves. That deep sense of inner knowing that brings us peace, confidence, and trust in ourselves and the lives that we are living. If you're new here, go ahead and tap the subscribe button wherever you are listening so that you never miss an episode. And if you are loving the show, go ahead and leave me a five-star rating and review so folks know what to expect, which obviously means you guys don't leave me a bad review. (laughs) Okay, so let's get serious. I've been open about my history with sexual abuse and how it has contributed to shaping the person that I am today. Something that I think about a lot is how our minds can play tricks on us or for us as a form of self-protection, but also how others can manipulate us, especially when we are young, into believing that abuse is normal or non-existent. I remember flat out thinking to myself, no, no, Nikki, that didn't happen. You imagined it and that at times I was met even with feedback from the adults in my life who echoed that sentiment like, no, Nikki, it didn't happen like that. Well, wait, maybe it didn't happen like that for you from your perspective, but that's how it happened for me. So I think what I'm getting at is that we learn to mistrust ourselves. We learn to not trust our own judgment and to betray our own gut instincts. And I'll speak for myself. I carry that lack of self-trust into my adulthood and I stayed in many situations much longer than I should have for many reasons, but mainly because I did not have that sense of self-trust. So on that note, today's guest, Alexandra Stevenson, is a former trafficking victim turned activist who embarked on her anti-trafficking journey at 11. So after 10 years of personal hardships, she recognized her experience as human trafficking. And honestly, like I am shook. With a candid storytelling approach and a strong academic background, Alexandra bridges communities, educates people on tough subjects, and empowers change. Alexandra co-founded Uprising in Wyoming and her personal brand, The Laughing Survivor in British Columbia. Alexandra's strength and resilience inspire others to persevere and foster compassion. And today we are going to talk about when sexual empowerment is really sexual exploitation rebranded. Let's get started. Alexandra, well, thank you so much for taking the time to to chat today. I'm really excited to listen to your experience and share some really important information about what you've been through and what you're doing with your experience, strength, and hope moving forward. So thank you. Thanks a million for taking the time to be here with me today. Well, thanks, Nikki. Thanks for having me here. So before we get into like the tough questions and topics, I'd like to start off by giving our listeners some background on you. Um, So are you open to sharing parts of your story with us? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so tell us a little bit first about like what what you're doing now with The Laughing Survivor and with Uprising. Absolutely. So I work in the anti-human trafficking field, which is both very broad and very specific. Basically, I'm an anti-human trafficking educator, advocate, and consultant with Uprising. When I first got into this field, it was with Uprising, um, a nonprofit I co-founded based out of Wyoming. Our focus is prevention education. So we don't, while we know so deeply that 
survivor care is so necessary and so needed, we also want to get upstream of the issue. Rather than continuously putting Band-Aids on bullet wounds, figuratively, maybe not so figuratively in some cases, we really want to figure out why people keep getting trafficked, why people keep trafficking, and prevent it before it even happens. Survivor care is necessary, of course, but survivor care exists because of failed or non-existent prevention. Right. So Uprising was founded to really focus on that prevention piece. Now, I'm Canadian, so I was living in Wyoming when I co-founded Uprising, and then I ended up moving back to Canada. And when I moved back to Canada, I thought about, do I want to start Uprising 2.0 or Uprising of the North or whatever it is? And quite honestly, uh, there was a very swift answer to that, and it was no. And that's because nonprofits are a heck of a lot of work. They are exhausting. You are having to beg for funding constantly. And as I'm doing this by myself here in Canada, and with my academic background, with my experience, I decided, you know what? I'm going to do a for-profit business. And this is something that people deserve to know about and people deserve to hear about. The brand under which I work in Canada, where I educate about human trafficking, I talk about my own story. I consult for different nonprofits when they're looking for a survivor voice. And I work with the government as well, just all different areas as I'm kind of navigating what the anti-human trafficking movement is in Canada. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that with us because I think something that you said is really important for people who are listening, especially if they're starting to consider getting into the non-for-profit realm and how much work it really, really takes. And not a lot of people, I think, you know, and I do a lot of service in the community in Miami and and nationally, and people underestimate how much work it really is, I think. And it's not talked about, you know, a lot. And I remember being a teacher, I got paid like $35,000 a year to do this really, really difficult and important job, right? That we don't, we don't even take our teachers seriously and we don't give them fair salaries in my opinion, you know, but my point in sharing that like from my angle is that you don't often hear people that have had the experience in non-for-profit work say, you know what, this is not sustainable for me. It's not lucrative enough for me to like sustain a life. I want to do good. I want to continue to do good, but I also need to like have a life for myself. It's like this weird thing that happens in society that that's shameful. It's like, if you want to do something good, you must do it for free. And like, <laughs> like keep it moving. And I'm just like, I'm so tired of that narrative. <laughs> so, you oh, know, my goodness. Yes. Alexander, this is like a very serious topic we're, we're discussing, right? We're talking about human trafficking, which is really, really serious. We're going to get into why that's so important for you personally. One of the things that I'm hearing that is really refreshing is just hearing that like, okay, you did the non-for-profit part of it here in Wyoming, which I love Wyoming, by the way, but you're like, okay, like that's not sustainable and that's okay. So how can we find a way as people, as individuals, because ultimately what the show is about is coming to a deep sense of inner knowing and then like providing your gift to the world, right? With with what you know about yourself, like providing that into out into the world and giving your gift back to the universe. It's like, how can we do that now and build a life for ourselves in doing so? So I loved hearing you, you just kind of like touch on that and you didn't, I don't know that you did it intentionally, but you did and I picked up on it and I'm like happy for you as a person who I've just met. I'm like, yes, go on, Sandra. Like, <laughs> like use your experience and everything that you've been through to go like do something really, really good for people and also be able to hopefully like create this beautiful life for yourself in doing so. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? I will say quickly here with what you just picked up on, 
very authentically, when I started The Laughing Survivor, I got an opportunity to do, to present to some local business people and get some feedback on my business model and, and what I was doing. And overall, time and time again, the feedback I got was, this is the helping field. You're a woman. No one's going to pay for that. It needs to be a nonprofit. And that, while I was still in the like, do I want a nonprofit? Do I not? That feedback very much made me be like, you know what? Screw you guys. I have value to bring to this, wow. not just as a survivor of trafficking, which we'll talk about, but as someone with several degrees in this field, would you tell a man who is as highly educated and experienced as I am to go beg for my salary because no one's going to pay me? Or would right. you say, you know what, that is a for-profit business and here's some tips on your business model? Right. So for me, I was honestly just kind of pushed into the, you know what? No, I'm not going to be forced into begging for my salary by looking for fundraising and then getting shamed if I want to be paid more than $30,000 a year because in the nonprofit, if you want to do good, you can't actually also want to fund yourself, right? You're supposed to just give it all back. So yeah, that was sort of my how I, and I still am very part of Uprising. I love Uprising. Nonprofits, I'm not trying to knock them. They are amazing and frankly, the backbone and we need to be treating them a lot better than we do. But we also need to not look at, you know, women in the helping field and be like, it's part of your makeup as a woman that you should accept less money and just do it out of the goodness of your heart. F that. I do a lot of things out of the goodness of my heart, you know, like, and I also think that like the two things can, can coexist. Like you can have uprising and you can have the laughing survivor. Like you can have both. Exactly. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. So Alexandra, thanks. That was, that's just a really refreshing outlook on it. I'm grateful that you share that with us because I know that I have a lot of female listeners that are probably listening to this and like nodding their heads like, hell yeah. Like, yeah, <laughs> like, I can relate to that. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you've read Oprah's book, What Happened to You. Oh, several times. Hey, it's, it's, is it in your, is it there? Oh my gosh. So, yeah. so Alexandra Stevenson, like what the fuck happened to you, man? Great question. And it's not a quick answer, but I am going to try and condense it to the, I say highlights, it's the lowlights really, but. Oh my point. gosh, I get it. Oh my gosh, I've never heard it said that way. Highlight, <laughs> highlight reel of my life. I'm like, actually, it's the low light reel. The low light reel. It's like, where, where we I get am now is the highlight reel, but that was definitely not the highlight. <laughs> yeah, that was where the the ball bounced yeah, and just like, kept bouncing. I bounced back up, but you know yeah. that was definitely where we hit rock bottom. This is like my coping mechanism, like in full effect. By the way, I'm like I'm, but it's it's all relative because your business is literally called the Laughing Survivor, and I'm here coping with my discomfort about what we're about to talking about <laughs> to talk about by by like laughing things off and being like ha ha ha. Listen to how funny I am because this is some uncomfortable shit that we're about to get into. A hundred percent it is. And you're right. My business is called The Laughing Survivor. And that is because, A, I have developed, you know, the amount of times I've heard, your trauma made you stronger. Like, no, it didn't. It made me funny. And I developed a lot of unhealthy coping skills. So there I am. And when I'm talking about this, I think everyone comes to my talks with their like most serious face and they're like, okay, we're going to, we're going to talk about some deep shit. And, and yes, we are. But you're not going to learn anything if you are just trying to keep your face schooled in the most serious manner. And when you leave my talk, you're like, I need 
a bath or a shot of whiskey or to sob in a corner for a while. You're not learning anything. If I can get people to engage with a little bit of laughter, even if I always watch the faces where they like laugh and they're like, like this is serious. And I'm like, like, no, we're allowed to chuckle. It's okay. Obviously, we're talking about human trafficking. So diving right in, I was trafficked at the age of 20 in 2007 by my boyfriend. I didn't actually find out I was trafficked or know I was trafficked until about a decade later when I was in Wyoming and I I happened to have a coffee with someone who explained what trafficking was to me. Now, that's the the very kind of seed or nugget of it. And I'm going to dial out a little bit because I really tell my story in a way that I want people to understand that I wasn't dropped on this earth at age 20, right? I didn't just suddenly wake up 20 years old you know, making choices that led me down a path. Things happened before then. So if you dial it back, I was a good air quotes kid from a normal air quotes family. Um, Mom and dad together, raised in middle class suburbia. Uh, Older brother, I did some sports. I tried to be a singer. Sorry to my singing coach. I have no business singing. And I really found my niche early on. When I was about 11 or 12 years old, a teacher read our class about Uh, a newspaper article about a story of a boy in Toronto who had started an organization called Free the Children, which later became the organization We Charity. And it was behind a massive Me to We movement across the globe of children helping children. Now, the very uh, crux of this organization, especially back then, was against child exploitation. So I was actually an anti-trafficking advocate at age 12 without even knowing it. That was when I first learned that kids There were kids working in factories and who didn't have, you know, a mom and a dad to care for them at the end of the day and and just were in really shitty situations. And myself and two of my friends formed the first Oakville chapter of this organization. And we would collect signatures for a petition to send to our government. We collected money for school and health kits to send to kids overseas who had been freed from child labor. And I was just like, exactly what every parent probably is going now that's a good kid right right. i'm skipping school dances to knock on doors to fundraise all of these things i was just i was doing speeches in front of city council or whatever it was at age 11 or 12. precocious kid afraid of nothing just taking on the world about a year later my best friend's uncle began sexually assaulting me and that went on for the next five years Now, a couple things that need to be pointed out in here. One, I started going down a negative path, but I also didn't track what was happening to me as sexual assault. I thought an older, good-looking man was interested in me. How old was he? He was in his 30s, and I was 13. Now, at 13, I had one eyebrow that traversed from one side of my head to the other, Um, I had very round, brightly colored, speckled uh, glasses. And this is, of course, before Harry Potter. So I promise you, no one thought they were cool. Um, (laughs) I had sucked my thumb until I was 10 or 11 years old. So I had crazy buck teeth. Not to mention, I was the nerdy kid collecting signatures after school. I was not exactly popular by any stretch of the imagination. And I was absolutely desperate to be loved. So when a good-looking older man showed interest in me, Part of my consciousness absolutely understood that it was not okay because I kept it secret. But part of me just reveled in feeling wanted. Over the next several years, I kept this secret, 
But like I said, part of my consciousness knew something was not okay. And I started indulging in drugs. And while a lot of people say weed is a gateway drug, trauma is a gateway drug. Yeah. Weed is just a way you deal with trauma for a lot of people. So for me, it was weed and then it was mushrooms and then it was ecstasy and stumbling down the path until I was using meth pretty regularly. Now, I think a lot of people have this idea of what a meth head looks like and, you know, you can point them out from a mile away and they're sitting in a corner scratching their skin off or whatever it is. I was a very functional meth addict. I was running two tanning salons at the time. I hadn't gone off. I'd finished high school, decent grades, hadn't suddenly changed dramatically enough for my parents to notice something terrible was happening. So I kept everything kind of under wraps. When the town meth dealer came into my tanning salon, I made a very conscious choice to be like, hey, what's up? And he was like, hey, what's up? And it wasn't long before we were dating. When you're awake 24-7, your relationship moves very, very quickly. And looking back with what I know now, he groomed me just so expertly. He asked me questions. He wanted to know everything about my life. He could read me from the fact that at this point I had been taught, I had separated my eyebrows, I'd grown my hair out, I'd, you know, gotten contacts, kind of a glow up as the kids these days are calling it. And I led with my looks. So when he seemed more interested in my mind than my body, to me, it was like, oh, he really respects me, right? Unlike all the other guys. You met Meth Dealer. And you get into a relationship with him and all of a sudden he's like into your mind and you're like, oh my gosh, this man loves me. Yes. I I don't know if I ever thought he loved me, though I I think so. But my concept of love was also I was very aware that I was dating a meth dealer and I was very aware that in this lifestyle, there were certain things you just had to deal with. And that was, you know, a touch of abuse, if you can say it kind of flippantly. So when I witnessed violence directed at other people and when that violence became directed at me, it was sort of like, well, you lay with dogs, you get fleas. Like this was part of the lifestyle. And I was I I enjoyed a lot of the sort of I'm a bad girl part of the lifestyle. And it was just a side effect of it. And I understood that. Now, when he said, hey, you know, we're doing more drugs than we're selling. We need to supplement our income. You want to help? I was like, yeah. Absolutely. Like, hey, we're like, going to be yes, more drugs. Makes sense. Let me help so we can get more yeah. blow whatever it is you're doing. And for me, it was like elevating me to not just wifey, but partner, business partner. Whoa. Oh, you were you just got a promotion. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, you know, he's like, hey, what if when we're at house parties, you distract some people, however, and I can take some things, we can pawn them supplementary income, like small. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. No problem. So when the next request was made, which was take that guy into that room, and I was like, "Eh, you know, I don't know. I want to do that. He's like, do you want everyone to know you've been stealing from them? Oh, shit. And I was like, wait, what? What do you mean I? Well, of course, he's the one with the clout, with the name, with everything. I was. So basically, he could ruin you. Yeah, 100%. And from that moment, he owned me and he knew it. So, for example, we'd be at the strip club partying, hanging out. And one night I just felt hands under my armpits and he literally picked me up like my feet left the floor. I had no idea what was happening. 
And he put me on stage and then whispered in my ear before he kind of like gave me a little shove and said, don't get down until you've made me some money. What I think people need to understand is I'm on stage at a strip club. There are people everywhere. There is, in fact, an angry stripper on stage with me because she's like, uh, this is my stage, bitch. <laughs> yeah, What are you doing here? And the amount of people, voices, eyes on me where I could have absolutely yelled for help, said, I don't want to be here, climbed off the stage. Oh, and it's your and fault that you didn't do that, right, Alexandra? Right. The thought never even crossed my mind. The only thing that crossed my mind at that point was, am I going to have to take off my bra and everyone will see my small boobs? That's the only thing that I remember thinking that first time is being terrified. It's so loaded, right? There are so many reasons why you were thinking that, like how everything in your life brought you to this one moment, because that's what life does. Everything we've experienced brings us to this this exact moment, this present moment, right? Exactly. And like everything that you've been conditioned to know about yourself and like humanity is how you respond to the world when you're experiencing it. When I tell this story or when I've shared this story, I always get feedback from someone like, why didn't you yell for help? Why didn't this? And I'm like, yeah, that if I had a brain that was a not on meth, hadn't like had slept, was thinking clearly, was not dealing with abuse and violence and fear and all of this as yours is now, maybe I would have had the clear thought to do something like that. But the thought didn't even enter my mind. It wasn't a consideration. Because it also became your like normal life. You're like, yeah. oh, this is borderline normal. Like you're just like taking these little steps further and further away from any type of like real normalcy, right? So that your new normal becomes something that is so, so like beyond. This conversation is so good, but before we keep going, I want to take a minute to thank our sponsors, Sana Skin Studio. The best way for me to describe Sana is that it feels like coming home. Unlike traditional facials, Sana's facials are rooted in education, and I love this so much. Every experience I've had at Sana has been a chance to learn more about my skin and its needs. I love that the facials are effective while also being accessible enough to be a monthly ritual rather than a yearly splurge. I'm honored to be able to provide our audience with a promo code. Use the code THENOGLOW for $25 off of your first facial at Sana when booking via sanaskinstudio.com. You're actually touching on a point that I teach about um, cognitive dissonance. So it's this idea that like my mindset doesn't match my reality. Wow. So at some point, I kind of went, I didn't think this was my life, but this is my life now. And I can either keep believing that it's not my life which means I have to accept that I'm trapped and I can't leave and that I don't have freedom or autonomy, which is a mind fuck that will will destroy your brain. Or I can buy in and I can say, you know what? I'm partying. I make more money than my friends do. I'm having fun. So what if I do something I don't like? Everyone has jobs where they do something they don't like. I had to buy into it or I think I quite literally would have lost my mind. I couldn't exist in a world where every minute of every day I realized or I was under the knowing that I was not free, that I was controlled, trapped. Or I could just go, well, this is fun. I party, you know, try and block out, you know, like horse blinders on to not look at the things I don't want to be doing and then just make the best of what I was doing. So when I end up on stage at a strip club, it was more about I'm ashamed of my small boobs and Oh, good. Another way to prove, you know, what a bad girl I am. 
So how did like, how do you even begin to get out of that? Because if we're talking about cognitive dissonance and then like really buying into this reality, like, first of all, I've been there, right? In my own journey with alcoholism, like where I'm like, okay, this is just it. Like, this is what I am. This is who I am. I'm just depressed and mad and angry and sad all the time. And I'm never going to be any different. For me, I know what that journey looks like to, to like crawl out of the depths of that experience and that reality of my life. Like, how did you get from point A to point B where you get out of that and like really, really say like, holy shit, this is not it. This cannot be it anymore. I think I'm probably still working my way out of that 10 years later. The 10, like there's still nuggets of that belief of do I deserve good things? You know, is was that supposed to be my life? Now I'm way down the line of that. There's still pieces of rot there that show up in really difficult moments. I'm so grateful and proud of you for even saying that. Like, I don't know you and I know that I don't get to have a sense of pride over you. I understand like that to an extent, but like to say that you're still growing and that you can have this business and this charity that where you're doing these things that you're helping people while you're still growing, I think is hugely powerful. I think there's a misconception that you ever completely heal. You break a bone and it heals, but it's still, you know, if, if you get an x-ray and you can still see that there was a break there, is it healed? Is it maybe stronger? It's strengthened in other ways or whatever? Fine. But that doesn't mean the break didn't happen. And that doesn't mean, you know, I don't have memories of it or in my worst moments, you know, of sleep deprived, deprived hell with my toddlers or something like that, that I go back to, oh, my God, what right do I have to raise children? Look at who I what like all like it spirals. And yeah, thankfully, I, get it. I now have tools and people where I can spiral onto them <laughs> and they'll just be like, OK, hold on. OK, you know, yeah. keep spiraling, but I'm going to keep you safe while you spiral a little bit. Yeah, I love that. So I'm going to keep you safe while you spiral. How beautiful is that to have those people in our lives? You know, and I'm grateful for that too, because I've had that. Thankfully, I've had people who haven't held me. You know, I've had people that are like, you're spiraling and I'm so mad at you that you're spiraling. And I've like learned over time that those are not my people. My people are the ones who hold me accountable. And they're like, I see you spiraling and I'm going to keep you safe while you're spiraling. And then we're going to talk about like the spiral. And I'm not going to forcefully grab you and try and stop you from spiraling because you know what that does? It stops me from physically spiraling so I can then present like I'm okay. And on the inside, I'm still going, everything's bad, not good. Everything's bad. And I learn to hide my spiral as opposed to spiral out loud and know how to ask for help. That's the point. I need people who can just keep me safe while I spiral and allow for it. It's part of who I am. It's part of my past. I can't erase it. It is part of who I am. So I just have to try and be a pretty, pretty ballerina while I do it and have someone hold me so I don't, you know, crash too badly. So something that you mentioned in this questionnaire that I sent, I sent to Monica that I want to talk about. So you noted when sexual empowerment is really sexual exploitation rebranded and you talked about explaining the truth behind the nuances of consent. I want to talk about that. I'm always very cautious because I know right now there is a huge debate in, I mean, depending on how connected you are to it, about the commercial sex industry. And on one side of the continuum is this idea that it's empowerment and sex workers are empowered and they choose to be there and therefore we should 
decriminalize it and make it easier and safer and all of that. And on the other side of it is people are driven there through trauma or negative life path. And there is no world in which there can be no egalitarian society in which sex work can exist because it only preys on vulnerable populations. Now, I don't have the answer to that. I have my opinions on it based on both academic research and personal experience. But I think what we need to do is rather than shut down the conversation and say it's one or the other, we need to be willing to dive into the conversation. So when you ask me about consent, we have to talk about what is consent. Yeah. Because when I grew up, consent meant yes means yes. Right. Which is, is why as well, I didn't track the sexual abuse I experienced to be sexual abuse because I didn't say no. No means no, right? But I didn't say no. I didn't kick, scream, or fight. So we're shifting the narrative into yes means yes. So you don't have to actively be kicking, screaming, fighting, saying no. But for true authentic consent to exist, you have to be saying yes. Okay, yes. Alexander, I hosted an adult entertainment professional not too long ago, right? And we actually talked about this right and we talked about consent and she gave me her take so i think it's really really fascinating to now have like the flip side of that right where we can talk about like okay she's in the adult entertainment industry and she chooses to be there she's talked about her own childhood trauma that led her to that place you know but now as an adult woman she's like well i choose to be here because i enjoy this and i'm consenting to this because for me yes means yes and we can like it's her story to go and say like how she got to that space and whatever. But I love that you're touching on the fact that like there's a lot of vagueness that goes into consent or the lack of consent, right? So that's essentially what you're saying with no means no versus yes means yes. Like there is a difference between like the absence of no and yes. Absolutely. So I wrote my master's thesis on examining the commercial sex industry through the lens of consent and through the biopsychosocial impact of it. Wow. So we need to be examining the commercial sex industry, not just on a, do they choose to be there or do they not? Because my story, I chose to be there, right? And anyone who would have asked me during my experience, if I wanted to be there, I would have vehemently told them yes. I would have had a smile on my face. I would have told them, I'm partying. You work some boring office job. Like, look at me. I bring in bills, bills, bills. You, I mean, you're struggling to make rent. I'm having more fun. I am sexually empowered. You're prudish. Like, it's my body, my choice. I can do what I want with it. Like, I would have absolutely touted all of that, 100%. And most survivors that I've spoken to or that are colleagues in the field, and we know also who are not necessarily colleagues, but survivors who come out of the commercial sex industry, there is a large percentage of them who, while they were in it, they were like, this is, I'm having so much fun. This is amazing. And it was after exiting, whether six months or sometimes five years or 10 years after exiting, they look back and they're like, no, I was not having fun. I was experiencing cognitive dissonance and I had to convince myself I was having fun so I didn't have to sit in the reality of what I was existing in. I will say, and this is a whole big thing, but a colleague of mine 
did some research comparing um, the characteristics of a cult to that of pimp-controlled domestic sex trafficking, and they match the idea of this us versus them mentality, the idea of the brainwashing, the idea of kind of an undying love and attention for a leader. Any sort of dissension is punished. I can't, I don't have the, the points in front of me, but a lot of people can understand a cult. They may not understand how someone gets brainwashed, but once they are brainwashed, they understand and have empathy for someone who is experiencing brainwashing through cult leadership. But we don't seem to hold a lot of empathy for people who are being prostituted by a pimp. They choose to be there. Now, what if we switch that on its head and understood people who are being prostituted by a pimp as being brainwashed by a cult leader? Are we able to hold empathy for them and start thinking of them less as them and more as people who are doing what they need to do to survive in that moment and may or may not come out of it saying, I would have made different choices if I knew I could. Have you seen the, um, there's, I mean, it's a meme floating around the internet, you know, everything is a meme now where it's like, I get my <laughs> psychology stuff from like memes and I'm like, I hope somebody who's well-versed like actually said this, but it, to me, it makes a lot of sense. It's like, forgive me. I need to forgive myself for the things that I did when I was in survival mode. Yes. Essentially, you know, like I go through that with myself, like the things that I did, you know, I, as an active alcoholic, the things that the thought processes, the way that I harmed myself or other people, you know, like when I was using and like, I have to really work at that every day. It's like, to your point that it's ongoing, that I have to work on that every day of like forgiving myself over and over and over again. And like continuing to be, because I still make mistakes and I still hurt people. and I still like mess up, you know, Absolutely. Um, just like learning how to forgive myself. And I think about like what you're saying in terms of like these people, right? Not just women, but people who are being prostituted and working as, you know, like sex workers and beyond those people eventually, hopefully if they come out of it, it's like a forgiveness that must occur that they need to forgive themselves over and over and over again for what they did to themselves and to other people when they were just trying to survive. Absolutely. What we allowed, the trespasses against ourselves that we allowed. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And how we survived our survival mode. And we had to twist our brain up into to exist within that mode and to come out of it. And the amount of times, you know, I've heard, I asked you if you needed help. You said you were having fun. Now suddenly what it's hip to be a survivor. So you're a speaker and a survivor. And it's like, <laughs> wow, there's a lot to unpack there. It's um, so crazy because like in that scenario, you can't win. No, like, you, you don't. Can't. You can't win. Like, so wait, I'm either, I either have to suffer like horribly and hate my life on the inside and my inner world is crumbling while my external world like is being chipped away as well. But if I take what happened to me, right, and I use it to continue my own healing and to hopefully help other people heal, like somehow that's attention seeking or that's like you're trying to be cool or whatever. And I think that we need to really like shut the fuck up about that. Like, I think people need to chill. It is not unique to women, but it is something I have noticed as a woman. There's this push that we need to humble ourselves. And everyone loves a success story when you're in the middle of it, as long as you're still recognizing and still 
look like the before picture, whatever that is, whether that's addiction or weight loss or struggling to make rent, as long as some of you still fits into that before picture, people want to hear your story. Once you are the after, then you're bragging. Then you need to humble yourself. Then you need to take a step back and stop attention seeking so much, right? You need, And this is where I think it keeps a lot of, and I'll speak as a woman, but a lot of us women trapped in saying, oh, I still have a lot of work to do. You know, well, I, I, I got here because of all the people who helped me here, you know, just kind of pushing off success as opposed to just being like, yeah, I fucking rocked that. Yeah, I, I am killing it. Do I still have work to do and still things to learn? Absolutely. But not in a uh, lesser version of me sort of way, not in a don't worry, I still have my left foot in my before picture to make everyone else more comfortable. I am like, adeptly in my after picture. And one day this after picture will become my before picture. And I don't even know what my next after picture will look like, but I'm going to keep working towards it. I don't need to keep one foot in my original before picture to make you guys comfortable. So I deserve, so you feel like I deserve to be applauded when I tell you that I'm no longer a drug drug addict or something like that. That's, that's not it. I can be proud of that. I don't need to keep wearing it. It's not a hair shirt. It's not comfortable. It's part of my story. It's not part of who I am now. And undoubtedly, I think, you know, podcasts like yours is where so many women and moms and people in general who feel alone or isolated or wondering if anyone else, you know, thinks the way they think or struggles the way they struggle or wants to wear their success without having to highlight their struggle first and just be success, whatever it is. Yes. I think it's not just you and me. It's everyone out there connects with it in some way. And when you create space the way you have with your podcast, you bring people together to be able to kind of fan those flames and and say, I don't have to be humble. And I can both be a mess and a success all in the same day, all in the same hour. I can do all of those things. I am a multifaceted human being. Stop trying to make me, you know, flat. Thank you for saying that. I, I really do relate so strongly to the it feels like an assault, but it's not, you know, it's like a lot more subtle than like a, an outright assault of like needing to humble myself. Mm-hmm. Right? Like yeah. pressures of like staying humble. And like that's that I consider myself a pretty, like a very grateful and humble person. But I definitely w- want more people to be loud about how far they've come, not feel bad about it. We don't have to be relatable just based on our you know, messes on our on our struggles. That is one way to relate. That is a very powerful way to relate. But it is not the only way we need to relate to each other. We can also relate to each other by being like, I am awesome at this. I killed it. I am nailing being a mom today. I just got an offer for an awesome speaking gig. I, whatever it is, we don't have to just relate so we can build a foundation of all of us down here lifting each other up. Those of us who in this particular situation have are up, reach back and lift people up and then celebrate at the top. You're allowed to celebrate. You don't have to be humble all the time. You don't have to be relatable all the time. You can just kill it sometimes. Oh my gosh, I love that. I love that. <laughs> 
This makes me like so emotional because I just, I can relate to it so fully. I feel like you're speaking to my soul. So I just, I feel like whenever one of my guests speaks to my soul like this, I'm like, you're definitely speaking to other people's souls. And I'm so happy. I'm like so happy. It makes me, you know, it brings me to tears to have the opportunity to have these conversations with so uniquely special people like yourself. Oh, well, thank you very much. This podcast was brought to you by Sana Skin Studio. Be sure to use my code, the no glow for $25 off of your first facial at Sana when booking via sanaskinstudio.com. More than a skin studio, Sana is a movement towards healthier skin and self-love. Thank you so much for listening to The No. If you loved this episode, go ahead and share it with a friend. Words are so powerful and someone may need to hear what we covered today. And if you really loved this episode, please take a moment to rate the show and leave a review. Your comments are so important and valued and they give other listeners insight on what to expect on The No. You can connect with me personally via Instagram at Nikki Sap Spo and The No with Nikki Spo. My hope for you today is that you are fearless in looking inward so that you can be your highest, most authentic self and go after the life of your dreams. 